Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another exciting episode of Smart People Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, John Rojas. Other host, Chris Stemp. Hey, Chris, what's going on? Hey, man. Living the dream. Living the podcast dream. That's right. Welcome, everybody, to the show. Sit back and open your brains. Today is awesome. We have an awesome episode for you. Today, we interview Jeffrey Frieden. And normally on the show, a lot of times we have these authors who, they're great. And I mean, they write great books. The one thing you'll notice is that's what they do. They write books. Today we have an academic, a true academic, who I'd like to think is really not peddling any wares. He's just telling us how it is and trying to save us from economic collapse. That's right. We're talking about the economy today. Jeff Frieden is a professor at Harvard University in the Department of Government. Jeff received his undergraduate degree from Columbia College, and then went on to get his PhD at Columbia University. He's taught at Harvard, University of California, Los Angeles, also known as UCLA, and he has written numerous books primarily on the subject of the economy and things like that. Today we're discussing his new book, which is called Lost Decades, The Making of America's Debt Crisis and the Long Recovery. I'm sure most people out there listening at least have been affected somehow by the economy, and um, it's good to kind of get somebody to put it into words. What happened? How we got here? How did we get here? You know, and where are we going from here? And notice, John, notice, lost decades with an S at the end because he thinks uh, we got another one ahead of us. Oh, we definitely get into that in the interview. It's it's quite interesting to see what he thinks is going to happen with uh, with America going forward. So as people are probably aware, we are now based out of the Washington, D.C. area and you know, we haven't been hit too hard by by this recession. In the grand scheme of things, 
we're nowhere near to the rest of the country. And it's it's really refreshing to hear Jeff talk about what the rest of the country is going through. Yeah. And it's also funny because just between you and I, we have these very different perspectives. I mean, you've you've been in your stable job for a long time and uh, held on to it probably wisely so. And I remember when I left my job in the corporate world, uh, everyone said, you're an idiot. Like, seriously, everyone was like, do you know what's happening in the country? And I'm starting to wonder how good of an idea that was, but good things come out of it. Creativity, this podcast, you never know. You got to look on the bright side of everything. Hopefully, after listening to Jeff today, you'll at least have a better idea how we got here, where he thinks we're going, and uh, learn a little something along the way. So speaking of the economy, we, we now have a message from our sponsors. This is Chris Stemp, and you're listening to Smart People Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in this morning, evening, afternoon, whenever it may be in your time. We ask that you head on over to our website at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Help us out. You know, help us bring you something better. There's a donate tab down at the bottom. A dollar will do. Anything. And also... There's an Amazon link at the top of the page. When you click it, go to Amazon and buy your products. We get a nice kickback, nice little commission, and it helps us support our month-to-month expenses. You'd be surprised. We rack up some bills, and we are in the hole, but we want to keep bringing this to you. Thank you. All right, enough of the cheap plug. That was awesome. John just got a new uh, new little soundboard, and we had to we had to try it out. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah, we got some we got some new toys here at Smart People Podcast, and I've been spending my nights trying to learn how to use the mixing board. You know how how to use the amplifier stuff, and so far I say it's a pretty good success. If this is the first time you're listening to the podcast, please don't judge us on that. It's just it's just for fun, and uh, we're just trying to bring you the real thing. So. You know, we hope you guys enjoy. We're going to get into the economy, and Jeff Frieden speaks on his book, Lost Decades. First, Jeff, I just wanted to get a little bit about your background. I know you're a professor at Harvard, and I kind of wanted to hear how you got there and what it is you're most interested in and kind of things like that, your, your path to today. Well, I'm a professor at Harvard, as you say. Uh, my my undergraduate and graduate work was done at Columbia University in New York. I'm trained as a political scientist, but since an early age, certainly an early academic age, I've been interested in the intersection between politics and economics. The field that I'm in, broadly put, is generally thought of as political economy, and within that, the politics of international economics. Uh, back when I was a graduate student, People doing political economy were almost exclusively in political science. But in the last 15 or 20 years, there's been a proliferation of or an expansion of interest in political economy among economists as well. So now it's a pretty interdisciplinary field. My particular interests within political economy are in the politics of international monetary and financial relations, money, exchange rates, debts, international investments, and things along those lines. And that's where most of my academic work has been done. Um, as I sometimes say, crises are my business, and these days business is very good. So I guess speaking of crises, um, we'll jump right into, you know, the main reason we're talking to you is because we want to learn how to fix this crisis, and you talk in depth about it in your new book, Lost Decades, which I have to say is an awesome book. I, I loved it because 
I'm a finance major. I understand money, but I don't really understand the politics behind it. So it kind of puts a puts it all together and it was just really well written for anyone to understand. And what I, I realized that it takes, you know, many pages and many words to explain everything that's happened. But before we get into some more direct questions, I was hoping you could give us your kind of your elevator pitch, you know, your quick synopsis right. of where we are economically as a country and how we got here. Right. So, well, thanks for the kind words, of course. So it's, it's, it's wonderful to know. The reason we wrote the book really was to try to bring some ideas that we thought were straightforward and really were current among scholars who work in these areas to a broader public because we didn't think they were getting the airing that they should. We didn't think that this point of view, this really understanding of the crisis was being uh, talked about and understood in the broad general public. There was a, there were focuses. It was a focus on individual firms, individual people, individual decisions, but not on the big picture. And that takes me to the elevator talk, as you call it, which is the way I think to think about this crisis is as a classic debt crisis, such as we might think of a debt crisis in Mexico or Brazil or Turkey or Russia or Thailand. The United States, like those other countries, borrowed very heavily for a long period of time, between 2001 and 2007, borrowed between half a trillion and a trillion dollars a year from the rest of the world. And much of the money that was borrowed was not used very wisely. It was used to fund budget deficits that were really not economically justified. And it was used to finance household consumption much of which went into a financial and real estate boom, which became a bubble. So in a way, the one way to think about this is for a century, Americans, economists and others, the IMF and others, have gone around the world telling developing countries, telling poor countries, don't borrow unless you're going to use the money for productive purposes. Don't run big budget deficits and just borrow the difference so that you don't have to raise taxes. Don't borrow for current consumption. If you're going to borrow, borrow to increase the productive capacity of the society. And in the last 10 years, we showed that that was pretty good advice because we ignored it and we got ourselves into terrible trouble. So that's the, the quick and dirty, but we can develop, or I can develop that in more detail if you want. Oh, absolutely. Really, to go back to, not the beginning, but to go back to where the current so let's start with the title of the book. The title of the book is Lost Decades with an S, which may sound pessimistic, but you know, as we know, a pessimist is just a well-informed optimist. We hope that we're wrong about lost decades, that is plural. We know that we've lost one decade. That is the decade, the first decade of the century um, was lost because whatever growth there was in the first six or seven years was wiped out by the recession. But let's, let's go back and try to understand what happened there. It's hard to remember, but 11 years ago in 2000, 2001, the federal government was running a massive surplus after a very difficult 1990s and a lot of bipartisan wrangling and eventually agreement, the, the uh, cutbacks in spending and increases in taxes led to about a $240 billion surplus in 2000. And in fact, the Congressional Budget Office at that point projected that uh, at that current, at the then current trend, by the year 2006, the entire federal budget, the entire federal debt would be paid off. Um, and that, in retrospect, that seems an amazing thing, and it also seems like it might have been a good thing. At the time, some people thought it was not such a great idea for some strange reasons. One, and not strange in the sense they're wrong, but reasons that it's hard to remember now. Alan Greenspan thought it wasn't a good idea because if the federal government runs a surplus, 
and pay, it buys back all its debt. And once it does that, it has to start saving money. And the reason to start saving money is that we know that 20, 25 years ago, we're going to run out of money for things like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. But what Greenspan was concerned about is if the federal government is saving money, it has to buy assets. And he didn't like the idea of the federal government in surplus going into, say, the stock market or the bond market and buying shares in private companies. So he thought it was a problem. And then some people thought it was a problem because if the federal government ran out of treasury securities, the way the Fed runs um, a monetary policy in the U.S. is that it buys and sells treasury securities uh, on the open market. If it runs out of treasury securities, it would have a lot more trouble running its monetary policy. So there were people who actually saw this surplus as a problem, and there was some discussion about this in 2000, 2001. But as we know, in retrospect, this problem was solved with a stroke of a pen by George W. Bush with the tax cuts of 2001 and then 2003. And those tax cuts uh, engineered the biggest single turnaround in the federal government's fiscal position in peacetime American history from about a, a, a surplus of $240 billion to a deficit of well over $400 billion. We financed most of that turnaround of that deficit by borrowing from abroad. We borrowed hundreds of billions of dollars a year from overseas to finance this budget deficit that resulted from the tax cuts. The, it also, in addition to leading to the budget deficit, it stimulated the local economy, the domestic economy. So the government engineered these tax cuts, people have more money in their pockets, they're spending more. That then was, was allied with a very, very loose monetary policy. The Fed pushed interest rates down to 1%, very, very low levels in 2002. Now, remember, 2001, we had a, a, a short recession, and there was also 9-11. So at the economic level, there was some concern about the recession in 9-11. The, the fiscal deficit, the government spending was meant to try to stimulate the economy, and the low interest rates were meant to do that. But the low interest rates persisted for a very, very long time, until the end of 2004. is the longest period of such low interest rates, again, in peacetime, modern peacetime history. And so you have interest rates of 1%, the Fed's interest rates of 1%, when inflation is 25 or 3%, which means that in economic terms, it's called negative real interest rates. You're essentially paying people to borrow. So you have the government injecting lots of money into the economy, borrowed from abroad, and then very, very low interest rates so that there's a big incentive for private households to borrow, which they did. So American households started borrowing massively. They didn't know it at the time, but most of the borrowing they were doing was supplied by foreigners. Foreigners were the people who were supplying this half a trillion to a trillion dollars a year that was being used for the federal government to borrow and for households to borrow. So when a country – so again, going back to the, debt, the, the general process of debt, when a country borrows from the rest of the world, there are some things that pretty much always happen. Got to spend the money on something. So one thing that you spend the money on is hard goods like cars and uh, steel and computers and clothing and footwear. So we get a big trade deficit. We start buying lots and lots of imports from the rest of the world. Our imports from the rest of the world skyrocket after 2001, 2002. So that's the first thing that happens. And that's, tr that's typical of a, of a borrowing spree, as you might call it. The second thing is you spend a lot of money on things that don't get traded across borders because most, actually most of what people consume are not things that enter into international trade. People consume restaurant food and entertainment and health care and education and housing. In fact, the single biggest component part of, every, uh, of the average American household's consumption basket is shelter about a third of, of expenditures. So the money that's coming into people's pockets, both because of the tax cuts and because of the borrowing from the direct borrowing from abroad, 
is being spent very heavily on these non-traded services like uh, uh, entertainment and healthcare and education and especially housing. So starting in 2003, as this process gets going, there's a big upsurge in the price of all these services, especially housing. So the money that comes into the country gets spent a lot of it on imports and a, a very large part, portion of it on services whose prices rise and, and those services in particular are concentrated in real estate and in finance. So you get a housing, you get a, a, a debt financed expansion of consumption. So people are consuming more and more based on this borrowing from the rest of the world. This debt financed expansion of consumption becomes a boom. The boom eventually becomes a bubble, especially in housing and, and finance, and the bubble bursts. And that's what takes us to 2008. And right now we're left with picking up the pieces. Now, one of the reasons I think it's important to develop this, this understanding of the crisis as a classic debt crisis is that we know from many, many dozens, even hundreds of past experiences, the debt crises are different than other crises. So we often think of a recession as a typical cyclical recession where you know, every five to seven to 10 years, the economy goes through a slump and then it recovers. But a debt crisis is different. And again, as I say, we know this because of the 150 or so debt crises that we've studied over the past 100 or so years. A debt crisis is different for two reasons, economic reasons and political reasons, two sets of reasons, economic and political. Economically, a debt crisis is different because the aftermath of a debt crisis, the country has a debt overhang, as we call it. That is, there's this massive accumulated debt that has to be dealt with. It can't be ignored. And creditors, that is, the people who are owed the money, now have all these bad debts on their books, and they've got to figure out what to do. They've got to restore or rebuild their balance sheets. They're not willing to start lending, to, especially to risky borrowers, as long as they've got all these bad debts on their books. So from the standpoint of creditors, there's this great reluctance to make new loans in the aftermath of a debt crisis, and that retards recovery. From the standpoint of borrowers, that is the ones who owe the money, the debtors, there's a similar problem, which is you've got all these debts, and they've got to be paid off, Paying off this accumulated debt, especially when times are tough, means you have to spend less, you have to save more, you got to save up your money so you can try to service your debts. So on the debtor side, people are very reluctant to spend. And so recovery from a debt crisis economically is very, very slow. But then there's the political side. So the economically, we know that the recovery from a debt crisis is very, very slow and very difficult. The political side, in some ways, is even more worrisome because debt crises typically always turn into major political conflicts. And the reason is that the most logical thing for people to do in the aftermath of a debt crisis in the political arena is argue over who's going to pay for it. Who's going to bear the, 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 the burden associated with dealing with this debt overhang? Is it going to be taxpayers? Is it going to be government employees? Is it going to be bankers? Is it going to be beneficiaries of government services, workers, managers? So my next question was going to be the debt crisis is almost worldwide now because there is debt crisis going on in, in Europe as well. Is that going to be a huge hindrance on the recovery of America or are we going to be able to get around recovering? Because you mentioned lost decades. And I, when I think about that, I see this taking longer just because of the fact that what's going on economically worldwide as opposed to just in the U.S. 
Well, there's no doubt that the fact that this is a global crisis is bad news for us and for the rest of the world. So one of the things, one of the distinguishing characteristics of this crisis is not only how deep it's been, it's been the most serious crisis since the Great Depression of the 1930s, but how global it's been. I mean, often there have been recessions where the U.S. has been struggling and Europe's been doing all right, or Europe has been struggling and U.S. and Japan have been doing all right. But here we have a circumstance where the three major poles of the developed world, Japan, the U.S., and Western Europe, are all doing very poorly. And that's bad because although there's lots of, there are a lot, many other countries in the world, those three regions, North America, Japan, Western Europe, account for the vast majority of the world's economic activity. So we can't rely on potential customers in Europe to pull us out of the recession, and they can't rely on us. So there's no question that the global nature of the crisis will prolong the misery. It's also the case that just as we have a debt crisis, we owe a lot of money to the rest of the world, the fact that within Europe there is a debt crisis means that they're mired in the same kind of economic and political morass. Uh, there's a, a, a more tangential thing, which is that many of the debts are – some of the debts – that are causing problems in Europe are owed to American financial institutions. Just this past week, a major American financial institution, MF Global, um, run by John Corzine, uh, went, went bankrupt because of its exposure to European debts. So there are particular aspects of the American or particular elements of the American financial system that are in particular trouble and specific trouble because of the European situation. But the broader picture is if the, with the entire or with the entire industrial world, enmeshed in very slow growth, very high unemployment, in the case of Europe, probably about to fall into another recession. There just aren't enough real engines of economic growth out there to pull us out of this thing with any reliability. As I understand it, globally, I don't even, this is way above my pay grade, but the amount of wealth doesn't change, right? I mean, it's it just changes hands. Is that a fair assumption? Well, I, I, I suppose so. It changes hands in, in the sense that uh, if I owe you a million dollars and then you default on that loan, now you have you no longer owe me a million dollars, or I no longer owe you a million dollars. But but there are real effects of these things. So, well, yeah, that, you know, that's what I was going to say is where is all the wealth now if it's not in these industrialized nations, you know? Well, the industrialized nation, nations still have most of the world's wealth. But what's happened is that we've had a terrible shock. So trillions of dollars of wealth in the U.S., Essentially, I wouldn't say disappeared, but the wealth, the wealth of the country declined dramatically when stock prices went down and when housing prices went down. And that was – people have this idea that that's somehow fictitious. It's not fictitious. So imagine on the upswing. You're uh, the average American family. Your home is worth $150,000, and you've got about $150,000 in retirement savings. This is around 2000. And between 2000 and 2007, your home appreciates to $250,000, and your retirement savings go up to $250,000. You now are richer, and your behavior changes. You can refinance your mortgage. You can take money out of your house. You can maybe save less because you say, gee, my retirement fund is really well funded. I don't have to worry about putting more money into it. I can spend more. So you actually you change your behavior because you feel like you're wealthier. And you are wealthier. Your house, the market price of your house has gone up. The market price of your retirement savings has gone up. Then all of a sudden there's a shock and you're back down to 150000 home and $150,000 retirement saving. And you again have to change your behavior. Now you have to save a lot more. 
now you can't spend as much. So there is a real impact of, uh, of this wealth. I mean, it, it seems strange to think of wealth disappearing, but you know, what else would it mean if you had, say, $100,000 in stocks and the stock price goes down? It has a real impact on how rich you are. And you mentioned, you know, we went into a deficit because of the, the tax cuts and then war spending under, under Bush. Another thing that I guess has plagued us is the rising cost of health care and then the demographics of, I mean, just, just the way that the, the population through the United States, like we're getting older and those people are requiring health care. And health care is about, I guess, what, half government spending or maybe a little bit less. Once we start to level out again, I guess, in age, do you see that the healthcare, social security stuff will start to get fixed? Or do you think that this will still be a problem as we move on throughout the years? It's, it's not going to fix itself. So there are right, two aspects right. of this. One, one is demographic and the other is cost. The demographic one is that, as you say, we have an aging population. Now, we don't have as, as quickly aging or as aged a population as many European countries, largely because of immigration. I mean, immigrants and their families tend to be younger. So one of the reasons that our situation is not as dire as that of, say, uh, many European countries is that we have uh, younger immigrant groups. But the, the population is aging. And so in, if things keep going the way they are now, the money that is contributed to pay for Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security will not be sufficient to support the generation that retires and needs Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security 15 or 20 years from now. So that's the first thing. For Social Security, well, let me just say the, sec the second thing is, which doesn't apply to Social Security, is that Medicare and Medicaid, which are, of course, of course about health care, face the problem of dramatic increases in the cost of providing health care. So even if we were covering the same number of people with Medicare and Medicare, Medicaid, we'd be realizing, you know, 8, 10, 12 percent increases every year because the cost of health care is going up 8 or 10 or 12 percent a year. So there are two interrelated problems. The first is that the number of people that have to be covered by these programs is increasing. And the second is the price of or the cost of the healthcare portion of the programs is increasing. Those are two somewhat separate problems, not entirely separate. The reason it's perhaps useful to make that separation is that Social Security is less of a problem than Medicare and Medicaid because Social Security doesn't have the healthcare cost thing built into it. Social Security could be dealt with in a variety of ways, none of them particularly popular politically, but not impossible. So you could tax Social Security benefits at a higher rate. You could people could retire a couple of years later. Um, there are a variety of relatively straightforward fixes to Social Security. As I say, none of them politically popular, but it's not that difficult an issue. Medicare and Medicaid are more problematic because they they require some addressing of the problem which no one really, I think, has a good handle on as to why healthcare has been increasing in cost so dramatically in the U.S. I mean, it's not just that it's increasing in cost, it's that we seem to be getting less bang for our buck in healthcare than a lot of other countries. So right. we spend more of our GDP on healthcare than anybody else, but we don't get better results than anyone else. So there are real questions as to whether, as to where is there waste in the system? Could it be designed better? Why is it so expensive? What can we do to reduce its cost to us as a society? Those are enduring problems. Those aren't problems for the next two years. Those are problems for the next 15 or 20 years, and they have to be addressed. We cannot continue to underpay 
for social programs that people want. Now, I, one thing I would say here, there's a lot of talk about fiscal responsibility and everybody's for fiscal, I mean, who could say they're not in favor of fiscal responsibility? It's like motherhood and apple pie. But what fiscal responsibility means doesn't mean you have to cut back necessarily. What it means is that you have to decide as a society to pay for the things that the society says it wants. So if we want, if we say we want a certain level of military spending or national defense, we've got to pay for it. If we say we want a certain quality of infrastructure, we have to pay for it. If we say we want a certain level of social programs, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, we have to pay for it. And we've not been doing that. For the last 10 years, we have not been paying for the things that people say they want. And that's you know, not tenable. That that point, I actually had a different question I wanted to ask you, but now that you say that, that point bo literally boils my blood because I agree with you. Everyone, everyone you talk to is going to say, you know, we need to spend a large amount on military, maybe not as much as we do, but enough to keep us safe. And we need to fund Social Security or at least help out the older people in society. And they'll say all these things. But then you say, okay, well, let's raise taxes. And it never gets or almost never gets a positive response. And that drives me insane. So especially right. because well, – you know, I think it was Everett Dirksen, the senator, used to say – that, that the, the general American attitude was, don't tax you, don't tax me, tax that fellow behind the tree. Okay, right. <laughs> it, it, exactly. And when you look historically, I believe we have historically low tax rates. Why is that? Why can't we convince people that we need to raise them? I mean, even smart people I talk to say, well, raising taxes won't help. And I'm not an economist or anything. It just seems like of course it will help. So what's yeah. your response to that? Well, so, so I think it is true. You know, we, we, I, I, last time I looked at the numbers, I think our tax take as a share of GDP is lower than it's been since the earlier mid-1950s. So that we are not a heavily taxed society compared to others, including other societies that most people would think of as being, you know, we're not talking about Sweden or something. So, so we're not that heavily taxed a society. Um, but, but I think you're, you ask, I think, a, a, in many ways, a more troubling and difficult question, which is why is there such resistance? And, and I guess I have, in a way, a cynical or perhaps troubling view of this, which is our society is divided in many ways. Perhaps one of the best ways to think about it is, is to think about what's happened in the aftermath of the crisis. So the crisis had different effects on different people. Um, and one way of thinking about this, which I, we present in the book, is think of the, at, the, at the worst of the crisis when the unemployment rate is about 9.9, almost 10%. If we think of the labor force divided into thirds, the bottom third, the poorest third of the labor force, which is workers and dependents, that's 100 million people. It's not just a few people. But the bottom third, the unemployment rate there was 17 or 18%. And then if you add on people who would like to work full-time but couldn't find full-time work, so they're working part-time, and people who've been looking for work for so long that they've dropped out of the labor force, so-called so discouraged workers, the unemployment plus underemployment rate rises above 35%. Sounds like a depression. Then you look at the top third, the wealthiest third of the labor force, again, about 100 million people in their, in their dependents, and unemployment there is 4%, and unemployment plus underemployment is 8%. So you have one segment of the population that actually, you know, things are not so great, but it's not that serious a crisis. And then another segment of the population that is really, really struggling. And, you know, the, there are people who will say, why should I pay more taxes to deal with a crisis that is not really so that, that severe uh, and not having that big, so severe an effect on me. 
I mean, by analogy, think of the European context where Germans say, why should we pay higher taxes to help out the Greeks? We, you know, to some extent, I could say there's a similar potentially similar regional differentiation here. Here in the, Boston, the greater Boston area, the unemployment rate's around 5%. You know, housing prices have gone down a few percent. Things are actually pretty good. In uh, Las Vegas, unemployment, I think, is 15%, and housing prices have gone down about 50%. Half, more than half the homes in the Las Vegas area are underwater. Very few in the Boston area. So I might say, well, why should people in Massachusetts pay to bail out people in, in Nevada? So I think part of the problem is the notion that increased taxes are going to people who aren't me. Why should I pay more taxes for people who aren't me? And that I think is a very, very short-sighted and narrow-minded view for two reasons. First of all, a lot of the taxes that we're talking about, a lot of the, the, the needs, at least the needs that I feel we're talking about, are not about giving, putting money in the pockets of one group or another group. They're about things like building up the infrastructure, building up the educational system, building up the healthcare system that will increase the productivity, the economic efficiency of the country as a whole. We have a crumbling infrastructure and an educational system that has a lot of problems. And if those continue, everybody's going to be worse off. Um, and then the second thing is that there is such a thing as uh, the desire to – that I think as a society, at least I believe as a society, we've made certain commitments to the least well-off not to let people starve on the streets. And you know, those are, for that matter – also to protect our, protect our borders from whatever threats there may be. Those are things that I think if we have decided politically we are going to do, we have to decide politically we're going to fund. Right. And, you know, the thing you mentioned about the difference between Boston and Vegas, I mean, we're in D.C. now, and a lot of my friends work in some form for the government or contract or something like that. And we'll say, you know, somebody even joked, what what recession? Because it, it's so recession proof that I think that right. kind of blinds you to the greater scheme. So I understand. I understand that as well. I did want to ask you one thing. In my opinion, kind of capitalism means working within the confines of of your market and the law to exploit inefficiencies, the efficient market theory and all that. Mm -hmm. So when a CEO pays low wages to his employees but takes a huge salary, or when someone who makes 30 grand a year buys a half million dollar house, or when a trader leverages to the hill to get a bigger bonus, are these the people that are at fault? I mean, do we need to ask these people to be more socially responsible? Because that's pretty tough to do. And they're going to be just as justified in saying, look, I, I followed the rules. Or do right. we instead blame the policymakers who, who deregulated this and allowed for this to happen? Yeah, well, I think that's a, that's a, that's a very important question. And to some extent, it's a, it involves morality or ethics. And I think individuals have to follow their own guidance on that. But I, if I'm thinking about it from the standpoint of the society, I think that the real problems typically are with the incentives not with individuals. I mean, individuals, I mean, they, some of the more sensationalistic coverages of the, of, the, uh, of the crisis do things like point, you know, point to greedy bankers, snorting cocaine and, uh, and things like that. Well, you know, my guess is that there've always been a lot of greedy bankers and maybe there've always been a lot of bankers snorting cocaine, but that didn't lead to a crisis. What ha what, for the crisis to take place in the way that it did, there had the incentives had to be wrong. That is, it had to be such. It had to be the case that policy had changed so that people were doing things that might have been rational for them as individuals, 
but that impose a terrible cost on society. And, and so an example would be, you, you talked about the, uh, forget about executive compensation for a moment, that's a, a somewhat different issue, but the leverage, right? All the borrowing that went on in, in this period. There were a series of decisions made that effectively made it incredibly attractive for people in the financial sector to lend more than they should have and for people in the household sector to borrow more than they should have. So one, I already mentioned monetary policy. Monetary policy was essentially providing potential borrowers with interest rates close to zero. And when interest rates are close to zero, guess what? People are going to borrow. By the same token, financial and regulatory policy was making it ridiculously easy for financial institutions to extend loans well beyond what I think is now clear was a prudent level. There were decisions made in 2003 and 2004 to allow financial institutions to take on much riskier loans than they had been allowed to do before and to take on much more of them than they had been allowed to do before. You give financial institutions, so the financial institutions are trying to make money. How do you make money as a financial institution? You don't make money by not lending it out. You make right. money by lending it out and you make money by lending it out to ever riskier borrowers because the riskier borrowers pay you more money. Mm -hmm. Now, why does that make sense? It makes sense from a financial institution standpoint if you know that if you get in trouble, the government's going to bail you out. Right. So if you put together the idea that monetary policy is making it ridiculously attractive for households to borrow, even when they probably shouldn't, regulatory policy is making it far too easy for financial institutions to lend money out at very risky, to take, take on very risky loans. Right? And uh, regulatory policy is also providing an implicit or explicit guarantee to the banks that are seen as too big to fail, then you have a formula for disaster. I'm sorry. I know we've gone over on time. I just, my listeners will not forgive me if I don't ask. So what's the solution? At least how do I want <laughs> it in your book? I'm not, I'm not holding you to the fire, but I'm just wondering what would you recommend? It's very important to separate out the short term from the long term. I think we have some very serious short term problems largely because the recovery is so sluggish. We are now two years after the end of the recession or the alleged end of the recession. We still have 9% unemployment. And the average worker today, in, in, in most recessions since the 1930s, when people lose their job, they usually get a new job within three or four months. In this recession, it's been nine or 10 months and it's getting worse. Um, every year for the last three years, Three million more Americans have fallen into poverty. So we have some very serious problems. The recovery is in trouble. It's very slow. And, and that's the short-term issue. So I think the first problem is how do we deal with this? The, how do we get the economy going again so that we have a modicum of economic growth and can get back on track? And I have, a, I have a, a couple of answers there, and I'll come back to that. But I also want to say that it's important to separate that short-term problem from the long-term problem that, that seems to be getting a lot of attention, and I think in some sense an unwarranted attention now. People talk about our fiscal problems as if they were a short-term problem. Our fiscal problems, that is the fact that we ha will have over the next 20 years very, very large deficits that we have to deal with them, that's not a problem for this year or next year. If we tried to balance the budget tomorrow, we throw the economy into a depression. Um, so in the long run, we need the fiscal responsibility we were talking about before. In the long run, we need to assess what the country is willing to pay for, and we need to pay for it in national defense, in healthcare, in education, in infrastructure, and things like that. That's the long-term solution. So that, that, I just want to be, be clear about that the, the distinction because it's very 
unfortunately, it is rarely made in the popular debate. And people say, oh, we've got all these deficits over the next 20 years. Let's cut back immediately. And that would be a big mistake. Going back to the short term problem, I think there are two big issues. Again, one's economic and one's political. The political one is that we we seem to have become mired in a political environment in which whether it's due to partisan politics or the fact that we seem to be eternally in an election year, these, no matter when it is, we always seem to be in election season, or the polarization of society or some of the other issues we've talked about, it seems to be extremely difficult and increasingly difficult to get agreement on how to confront what really are national problems like slow growth, high unemployment, job creation, things along those lines. So there's a political problem here that I think has to be addressed, a, a political problem associated with the unwillingness or inability of the American political system to to work out a consensual attack on what really is a series of problems for the country as a whole. So that's sort of backdrop. More specifically, I mean, I know you're looking for a a silver bullet or a stake (laughs) to drive through the heart of of our current short-term economic problems. I'll I'll go out on a limb and give you a one-word answer, which is not a solution, but a step towards a mitigation of the problem, and that is inflation. We are currently, the, the, the biggest problem we face as a society is this debt overhang. We have massive debts which cannot be serviced as they were contracted. There are 30 million households in America that owe more than they can reasonably be expected to pay back. And that is bad both for the households and it's bad for the financial system because the financial institutions are holding on to lots of bad, bad debts and are desperately trying to struggle their way through this very difficult financial environment. So if we, if we, were, ta- if we were talking about Europe, we'd say, well, they need to restructure those debts and reduce the amount that Greece owes to Germany or whatever it might be. We're talking here about tens of millions of households. You can't do that. You can't, re- you can't go and renegotiate every mortgage in America. But that's right. what inflation does. What inflation does is reduce the real debt burden because your debts are in nominal terms, nominal dollars. If you run three, four, five percent inflation for a few years, you reduce the real debt burden. And I have to say, before anybody objects that I'm being uh, crazy radical, that this is not just supported by, a cra- by crazy radicals. That is, people like Ken Rogoff, the former chief economist of the IMF, uh, who's a, a lifetime conservative Republican and worked in the uh, Bush administration, people like Greg Mankiw and, and others with impeccable conservative credentials have said something very similar. That is, that several years of moderate inflation, three, four, five percent, would dramatically reduce the burden of this debt. And the principal drag on the economy at this point is the debt burden. If not, if we could get real interest rates negative so that people would start spending, so that the debt burden would start going down, then that would help us. It wouldn't do everything, but it would help us towards a recovery. And so in the short run, I think that what we need is more stimulative monetary policy. I would say more stimulative fiscal policy as well, but politically that seems pretty much impossible or close to impossible. Uh, And in the longer run, we need to confront the broader issues associated with getting our house in order, getting our economic house in order. I don't know if that answers your questions, but it's my shot. No, that that's that's incredible. We're not saying everybody has to believe it, but at least it's 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 a theory by some somebody like yourself and also some other smart people. So that's what we're trying to do here. You know, is just learn from from the best we can. Good. So, 
Jeff, I really, really appreciate your time. Like I said, I know we went over, but sometimes we get excited and we just keep. Well, talking, you know, you know, us professors, we like to talk, <laughs> yeah. so you don't have to yeah, apologize. So, you give me, yeah. give me a bully pulpit, and I'll use it. Yeah, no, hey, we like that. And again, your book, Lost Decades, The Making of America's Debt Crisis, is phenomenal. Congratulations on that. We will put a link to um, to where you can buy your book on Amazon and whatnot on our website, along with a post, which is smartpeoplepodcast.com. I, I really appreciate you being on the show. It was my pleasure. Good talking uh, to you. Welcome back, everybody. That was Jeff Frieden. You know, regardless of if you agree or not, we all know we're in trouble. So hope you learned a little something and you might think next time you pull that dollar out of your wallet. Yeah, and I definitely hope you guys enjoyed the show. And, and just to let you know, Chris and I are back on a, on a regular schedule of releasing podcasts. We're working hard. We're enjoying this. We're having tons of fun. We've got the new equipment. So we're going to do weekly episodes, try to bring things to you guys on a regular basis. You know, just hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah, I think we're going to be aiming for like Saturday releases. Saturdays. And, you know, what will really help us out is if you head on over to iTunes, comment, rate us. Good ratings and tons of comments actually drive our numbers up on iTunes. And it puts us up, gives us more visibility, and hopefully more downloads. Yeah, and we're just trying to bring a little more knowledge into the world. I mean, that's really our agenda. So if you guys can help us out by just spreading the word and... Also, we're going to try something different in the future. I think I tried it on Facebook for one of the last episodes we had and it didn't go so well. But what we're going to do is we're going to let you guys know via Facebook and Twitter who we're interviewing. So if we're interviewing somebody that day, we'll let you know in the morning. And if you've heard of that author, great. If it's a topic you enjoy, great. Let us know what you want to hear. You know, tell us a question you have, something you're wondering. And we're going to try and pick one, maybe two, an episode and we're going to ask him that. It's going to be our listener question segment. So it's just a way to, you know, put you guys directly in touch with the smart people that we talk to. That's all we got. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And remember, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. See you out there.